Let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Ruth. We're going to continue in our Advent series looking at this snapshot of God's redemptive history as played out in a distant part of Jesus' family. So this morning we're in Ruth chapter 2. We'll read the whole, uh, the whole story just to kind of get the context before us. So I invite you to stand if you would and let's hear God's word. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men to not touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you have left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given, be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. 
And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Beloved, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, don't let us miss what you're doing. Don't let us miss what you're doing in the world. Don't let us miss what you're doing in this church. Don't let us miss what you're doing in our hearts. Lord, would you speak now for your servants are listening. Our desire is to see Jesus and him only. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. Disney has a way of taking some really horrifying things and making them seem almost pleasant. For instance, Peter Pan was never supposed to be a lighthearted tale about a young boy who refused to go, grow up. It was a dystopian horror story about a kid that could never actually grasp what was going on in the world and refused to actually see with eyes wide open what was going on in the world. There's another aspect of life that got, uh, it got a theme song. In The Lion King, which I hear there's apparently another version of The Lion King because, you know, Circle of Life. Um, the Circle of Life got its own theme song. Now, before we saw Simba and, and all of the rest of the characters in The Lion King rallying around this joyous idea of the Circle of Life, let's be clear about one thing. The idea that the life was just cyclical was not, in fact, a great song and dance routine. It was a tragic, cynical irony of the world. Philosophers and people alike simply saw that life was never-ending, cyclical. We eat, we drink, we be merry, for tomorrow we die. The difference, however between the cynical philosopher and God's people is that throughout the scriptures, God's people have never viewed life as cyclical. They viewed it as linear. Redemption is going somewhere. There's always a pattern, uh, as one author put it, in great stories. Happy, sad, happy. Think about every great story you've read. It's happy, sad, happy. In the world where, in which we live, happy was we were created in God's image to enjoy God's shalom. Sad is when sin entered the world and death also with it. Happy is where the world is going. 
Resurrection is a promise for God's people. Therefore, life is not cyclical. It is linear. But here's the thing. Redemption is something that is God's timing. In our lives, we don't know what resurrection is going to look like. And I don't mean resurrection in the sense of being born again as sons and daughters of Jesus. And I don't mean necessarily resurrection as in the last day when all things are finally and fully made right. What I mean by resurrection is what we see beginning to happen here in the book of Ruth, where Naomi, who left full and came back empty, where she is now saying, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. We're beginning to see pieces and parts of what resurrection, what rejoicing might look like for Naomi and for Ruth. But it's all in God's timing. It's it's not up to us to write that part in the story. The problem is we try to. We try to be the authors of our own resurrection. We try to be the authors of our own happiness. We try to be the authors of our own story. And because we don't know what resurrection in our our life is going to look like, we don't know the timing of it, we don't know the essence of it, we're not in any place to be demanding about what it should look like. But we do, don't we? We demand of the Lord, this is what the happy ending to my story should look like. And for every person, it's different. But make no mistake, all of us try to be the authors of our own happy ending. Here's the thing. None of us have the ability to write resurrection into our story. We can only... Uh, Our only call is to attend our lives as Jesus did, which is embracing whatever death the Father puts in front of us. That's That's all Jesus could do. He could walk in obedience and embrace whatever death the Father put in front of him. Only God can bring resurrection. For us, that embracing of that death, maybe the death of a dream, the death of a person, maybe the death of a desire. But because we ultimately trust the heart of the Father and know that he is committed to us, resurrection is a certain promise, not a hopeful dream. But we just get ourselves tripped up when we start demanding what our resurrection should look like and then start trying to author it into our stories ourselves. To walk in the ways of Jesus is to receive the providence of God and to walk faithfully, trusting in the heart of the Father. The only way that we can walk obediently in this life is to, like Jesus, humble ourselves to the point of death. When last we we left Ruth and Naomi, they were out of options, but they had returned to Bethlehem. They had returned to the house of bread because the Lord had visited Bethlehem and brought food again. The famine was gone, and the Lord had visited and brought food again. 
Naomi was, was out of options. She was a widow in a patriarchal society. She had no family really to inherit anything that belonged to her husband. She was destitute. And Ruth had said, wherever you go, I will go. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. And ultimately, where you're buried, I'm buried too. Her daughter-in-law, the Moabite, Ruth, had given up everything. She'd given up family. She'd given up a husband. She'd given up kids. She'd given up her dreams because of why? Because the God of Israel had invaded her heart. The God of Israel had changed her. And she said, Naomi, your life isn't over. My life is over. Follows her back into Bethlehem. They needed food. Now, the Levitical code made room for widows and peoples in distress during the harvest to go and work in the fields and glean some food for themselves. It was a, it was a work for welfare type program. And so they went and, and Ruth said, I'm going to go out into the field and I'm going to go glean in the barley harvest. And here's the first thing I want you to see in our text this morning. It's God's providence is all over our text this morning. And the narrator in Ruth doesn't want you to miss it at all. Our text in verse 3 of chapter 2 turns a really interesting phrase. Look with me if you would. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. As one commentator put it, a more precise translation of the text would be, as luck would have it, she chanced on the field. Now, James, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Does the author, does the narrator in Ruth want you for a second to believe the line that as luck would have it, she chanced upon the field? No. This is the beauty of Hebrew literature. It is all tongue-in-cheek. It is all uh, the glorious acknowledgement that behind everything going on in the text is this unseen hand of God who is writing every letter on the page, who is painting with every brushstroke the picture on the canvas. It is God at work from beginning to end. There is no as luck would have it in Ruth's life. There is no that she chanced upon this field. By divine appointment and by divine providence, she was brought to this field. Who was Boaz? Boaz, as we will see in a moment, is a distant relative of Naomi. Now, could Naomi have told Ruth that there is such a man named Boaz? No. Has Naomi done anything helpful at all for her daughter-in-law? No. You'll remember that scene of brutal irony when she gets back into Bethlehem and she says, I left full and the Lord brought me back empty and Ruth is standing right next to her side. You see, sometimes 
When life brings us to points of extreme grief and extreme pain, we are not able to see and interpret our world rightly. That's just a fact. Hurt people, wounded people, aren't necessarily the most helpful people. They're not necessarily the most kind people. And yet, Ruth faithfully stayed by Naomi's side. Now, we were introduced in the text to Boaz, a worthy man. Um, the, the phrase worthy man is a two-word Hebrew phrase giving us the sense that he's a strong, powerful, dignified, good man. Uh, his name means in him is strength. So we see the hand of God, not only uh, did Ruth end up in Boaz's field, but look at what happened. Verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So the day that, that Ruth happened to be in the field, Boaz happened to show up from Bethlehem. And you'll remember that the book of Ruth is set in the time of the judges. This is not one of those banner times in the life of Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did as he saw fit in his own eyes. But yet, how in the midst of all this turmoil does Boaz come and greet his workers? He comes and he greets his workers, and he says, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. He inquires, verses 6 and 7, about the young woman working in his field. But look at this. He doesn't ask who she is. Did you see what he said? He said, whose young woman is this? Now, before you get freaked out in thinking that this is just another evidence of a patriarchal society treating women like property, give Boaz the benefit of the doubt. He's not treating her like property. He wants to know, is she cared for? Whose is she? Where does she fit? Who is caring for her? His foreman replies, in effect, she's the foreigner who came back with Naomi from Moab. She's an outsider. She doesn't belong to anyone, but she's worked really hard all day long. She only took a brief moment for rest. And so Boaz then speaks to her. Verse 8. Now listen, my daughter. Again, this is the time of the judges. You'll remember in Judges 19, I had to give, an, when we preached through Judges, I had to give an entire, like, by the way, we're going to talk about some really heavy stuff this morning, disclaimer on that chapter. When people lose their sight of the Lord, when people lose sight of God and begin to live as they see fit in their own eyes, bad things happen. Women were not safe. And so Boaz, in a string of quick statements, carefully constructed statements, 
carefully chosen words, Boaz not only gives her a place in general in community, but he draws her specifically into the safety of his community. Look at what he says. By the way, when you look at the, at the hierarchy of people in Israeli society, Boaz is about number three on the list. Ruth is down at number 16. He's got no reason to speak to her in this way, and yet he does. She is now hearing kind words, dignifying words, life-giving words from someone. Listen to what he says. He says, don't glean in another field, stay in my field. Don't leave this one. Did you not hear me the first time? Stay in this field. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Go after them, the young women. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink. He's made it clear that there is to be, a zero, there's to be zero harm to come to her. To mess with her is to mess with him. Now look, Ruth bows. She, she bows so deeply that she, she touches her forehead to the ground. In that moment, we feel how scared she must have been all of this time. She's not wearing a cape. She's not a superhero. She's walking in obedience to the Lord. But man, she must have been scared. And finally, we feel the first rush of emotion come out as she says, how have you given notice to me? The text basically says, you've noticed the unnoticed. Verse 10, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Why have you noticed the unnoticed. In the Old Testament, action begins with the eyes. When God expressed his love for Israel, he told Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, that I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Paying attention to someone is to move towards them. It's to get into their world. If God is the one that is providentially writing the story and God's heart is good, this is where our problem comes when we try and write our own resurrection into the story, when we try and write in what our own happy ending should look like. Not only that, God has providentially placed us in and among and around people to be this source of grace that Boaz was to Ruth. We're going we're gonna to hear now um, Boaz's answer when she said to him, why do you notice the unnoticed? Why are you doing this? So it's the first thing that we saw in our story this morning. 
was God's providence. Here's the second thing that we're going to see. God's faithfulness. Boaz answers her. He says in in verse 11, these things, he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. That phrase, left your father and mother and your native land, is the same wording that we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, underlining the fact that Ruth has forsaken marriage to love Naomi. What Ruth also did is she described herself as a foreigner in terms of the covenant that God made with Moses that defined Israel as God's covenant people. You'll remember, by the way, when Moses went to Mount Sinai and came back down with the tablets, this was God constituting for himself a nation state that was his own. Moab was just on the outskirts of Israel. It was, a, it was the hillbilly country, as we said a couple weeks ago. So Ruth knew full well who Israel was, who God's people were. And so she calls herself a foreigner because she knows that she's not part of God's people. But if you look at how Boaz answers her, he doesn't answer her in the terms of the covenant that God made with Moses. No, what he does is he answers her in terms of the covenant that God made with Abraham. goes back further to the covenant that God made with Abraham and identifies her with the father of the faithful. What was the promise that God made to Abraham? Through you shall the nations be blessed. Through you shall the nations be blessed. Like Abraham, Ruth had left her home and family to come to an unknown land out of loyalty to Naomi and through faith in Naomi's God. So after answering that question of why is it that you would do this, Ruth asked Boaz, what motivates his care for her? Did you see how he answered her? He answered her by saying that he's motivated by what motivates her, the God of Israel. That's why he would do this. He goes on then in verse 12 and pronounces a blessing on her. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He asked the Lord to repay her for what she has done. The word repay is derived from shalom, bountiful peace, where Ruth would be restored to wholeness. Practically, what would that mean for her? What would it mean for for a Moabite woman, for a young woman to be restored to fullness, to be restored to peace? Practically, it would mean that there would be a loving husband, a house full of children, and abundant food. Boaz isn't just saying, I hope these things come your way. He is beginning to actually enact these things because he loves God. So look at the third thing I want you to see this morning, God's provision for her. Verse 13, then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. 
At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. At mealtime, we see that God was providing for her. For what seems to be the first time in a long time, Ruth finally has a place. She was welcomed at the table. And she has bountiful provision. There was so much food, she couldn't finish it all. In the ancient Near East, um, you wouldn't want to finish all of your food because to eat it all would imply the host didn't provide for you enough to eat. She ate until she was full and she had left over. But here, Boaz wants Ruth to feel the full weight of his love, to be filled to overflowing. Boaz is quietly and decisively countering Naomi's lament that she came back empty. Did you see in verses 15 to 16 what he said to his, what he instructed his, his workers? So Ruth's gone back out into the field. His workers are still back with Boaz. And listen to what he says. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also, verse 16, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So remember, in this day and age, your crop was your money. This is your wealth. This is your livelihood. This is your 401k. Boaz directed his workers to actually pull out grain from among the sheaves, implying that he wants them to be covertly generous. He he isn't just following the letter of the law when it comes to how he would treat a widow and an outsider. He's he's following the spirit of the law. He's, He's pulling money out of his own wallet by the fistful. He wants to overwhelm Ruth with love. So she gleaned, verse 17, in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That basically means um, it's about three-fifths of a bushel or 22 liters of barley. She had enough barley for a half a month's worth of food at that point. That's a lot of food. Especially when it would, according to the Levitical law, it would just be the perimeter that she would be gleaning from the field. And yet somehow she brought home enough that she had an abundance of food. She goes home to Naomi and she brings her leftovers from lunch so that Naomi could eat and be satisfied as well. And her mother-in-law, verse 19, said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi, verse 20, said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, Whose kindness? Boaz's kindness or the Lord's? See, grammatically, it's uncertain. Who's the one that's not stopped showing kindness or covenant faithfulness that has said to the living and the dead? It could be either the Lord or Boaz, but since Boaz has had no history of dealing with Naomi, 
it seems like in this context, it surely must be that Naomi is speaking of the Lord. Suddenly, Naomi was beginning to see that the Lord was not out to get her. That maybe his hand had not gone out after her after all. That maybe her self-described, self-named moniker of bitter didn't fit. That God was, in fact, still able and willing to smile upon her, to show her covenant faithfulness in spite of her history of sin and rebellion. So in verse 20, friends, we're introduced to this term. It's a Hebrew word named, uh, the Hebrew word redeemer, which is this concept of a goel. Uh, in, in Hebrew, in Israel, a goel was a redeemer, um, And one way to understand how a redeemer functions is to look at the level of ownership they take in whatever situation they are involved in. A goel, a redeemer, doesn't just give advice or point people in the direction of help, but rather steps in and takes ownership of the situation. Verse 20, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, I don't know how many of you are scholars in Levitical law, specifically when it comes to this arena of, of a Leverite marriage. I'm not either. But one thing I do know is that the law does not in any way require any kinsman redeemer to come in and do anything for the foreign widow of an Israeli son. Boaz doesn't have any direct obligation to this family. He can redeem them, but he has, by no means does he have to. And foreigners who had illegally married into the family, there's just no, there's no category there for that. There were loopholes that Boaz could have slipped through, but Boaz, as we have, as we have seen, was not just concerned with the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. This, beloved, is God providing for Naomi and for Ruth. This is God's provision. God's provision is not just in um, the story just taking on a happy ending. It is God's lavish and abundant grace being poured out upon this family because God is in the grace-giving business. And by the way, don't ever think for a second that God's character has been anything else other than gracious. It's not as if there was some point in the story where God said, well, I can't be the mean, spiteful, judgy ruler of the universe. I have to be the gracious one. The fabric of the universe beats with the heart of God, and it is God's graciousness. Boaz had heart that had been touched by God's covenant faithfulness, and it overflowed to those around him. There's one other thing I want to share with you about this part of the story as we uh, conclude and go before the Lord's table. And that's the timing, as luck would have it. If we think about the timing of the events happening in Israel in the book of Ruth, consider this. Naomi and Ruth arrived back in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. In other words, they came home at the time of the Feast of Passover, when grain harvest began. What an amazing time, by the way, to exodus back from Moab to Bethlehem during the Feast of Passover. 
by the end of chapter 2, at the end of the barley harvest, um, when, that, when the end of the barley harvest had arrived, seven weeks had passed, and it was time for the festival of first fruits, which was part of the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. So Naomi and Ruth had experienced the first fruits of God's lavish grace in Boaz's grain, but they have not yet seen the fullness of what God has in store. Listen, Ruth not only experienced the first fruits of God's lavish grace, in a sense, Ruth was, in fact, the first fruits of God's grace. In the fullness of time at Pentecost, God would pour out his spirit on Jews and Gentiles alike, bringing them together into the one new people of God. Ruth being brought into God's people by faith was a foreshadowing of a much greater harvest that God would one day reap among the Gentiles as his grace extended more fully to the nations. All the while in the book of Ruth, Naomi has been fighting to be her own savior and to achieve her own resurrection. And God has been patiently, lovingly frustrating her bitterness with lavish and abundant grace. The thing about God's providence, friends, is that we don't actually know where it's going, but we know the heart of the Father that he is good. And the thing about resurrection is we don't know what the essence of it will be or the timing of it will be, but we know that resurrection is a promise for those who follow the Lord, who are loved by God. For God is working all things together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes in Christ Jesus. That's not a band-aid to say that suffering doesn't matter. That's a promise to say that suffering will be redeemed. Beloved, we don't know what resurrection will look like in our lives. We don't know what shape it will take or how long it will take or what part our story will play in the grander story of God. But this, this is what we do know. There is not a single tear or trial of the people of God that will not ultimately, finally be worked out to God's glory and our good. All we can do is follow Jesus. We can take up our cross and we can follow him. All we can do is obediently die. It's up to God to bring resurrection. And here's the good news about following God along that path. God has never once broken his promises. Do you understand that? God has never once broken his promises. And the empty tomb and the folded grave clothes and the risen Savior and the promise that he will come again are sure and yes and amen in Jesus. This day, friends, our Father has spread before us a feast. And with open arms and an open heart, he is scanning the horizon for the prodigals to return home. He doesn't just allow us grudging admission to glean in his field. He invites us to his table to partake in his feast. He sent his son to become one of us so that we might become one with him. It was at the cost of his own son that he welcomed you and I home. 
And it is the promise of resurrection that we cling to him with tears, even though we don't know or understand or see what is going on in the world. We know that the promises in Christ are yes and amen. And until that day comes, when every tear is wiped and every sad thing is made untrue, we come by faith here where God's grace is demonstrated and wherein we feast on Christ. Christ.